Kim Carson. And I'm Peter Klein. And this is We Had No Idea. Idea. Uh, episode 25. We come to you from Okinsis, and we acknowledge that we get the privilege of living and producing this show on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Tsutsina Nations, the Iahe Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of southern Alberta. You can find out what native lands you're on by looking at native-land.ca. Do you see how I held off on the joke until after the land acknowledgement? personal growth it's personal growth and i appreciate it our sources for the show today britannica tripsavvy.com romecitytour.it rome.net brussels.net cbc.ca history.com beijingvisitor.com whc.unesco.org dot org dot blogspot would be a thing <laughs> We are an official organization, but we cannot afford Squarespace. My favorite thing is to put dot blogspot after everything. It's like, yeah. you can email us at wehadnoideapodcast at gmail.com dot blogspot. <laughs> <laughs> but you good. can, seriously, uh, you can email us just sans the blogspot on right. that. Uh, you can also hit us up on Instagram. We are at wehadnoideapodcast. And you already know it. We already know it. But here we're going to say it anyways. We're going back to landmarks. Yeah, buddy. Crisscross applesauce all over the world, baby. Yes. Uh, I will admit with mine, I picked three that I would like, I was kind of familiar with, okay, but didn't know the stories behind them and thought like the the last one we did, I would stumble upon a a humorous anecdote or something. Mm. A lot of them pretty straightforward. I'll be honest. It was, yeah, they came up with the idea and then they built it. Okay. Oh. Okay. So today I will marvel at the efficiency of thought placed into action. Okay, great. Yes. Wow. I'm really selling this one hard, I know. No, I think it's great. I think that that, um, the the best part about both of us doing a podcast together Mm -hmm. is that um, we, in fact, have our own brains. So when we do these kind of ping pong style podcasts, uh, you know, we really get to see... The differences between us. Mm-hmm. Yes. So if nothing else with mine today, if you're ever wondering, huh, I wonder if there's something interesting behind that. Now you know there isn't. So that'll be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Just cr- cross that burden off of your list. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> uh, uh, so thank you. Thank you for downloading. Um, I can't believe that we're doing like, we've, we have so many episodes now. Yes. That we officially are doing a part two on something. Yeah, I guess technically. Sorry to interrupt. Um, No, it's fine. Technically, for our indigenous episodes, we did two. We did a part one and part two. Mm -hmm. But now we're like circling back. Yes, we have recurring theme episodes now. Oh, cool! I also have a recurring theme in my last landmark that I will talk about today. Ooh! I have a little tie back facto. Oh, fun! Yeah. I have a rant that goes back to the other one, but we'll get to that a little Hell bit. Hell yeah. <laughs> and people listening to this probably all who listened to the last landmark episode probably already know exactly where I'm going. Um anyway, shall we start? I would love to. Okay. Remember, rate, review, subscribe wherever possible. Uh tell your friends, tell their friends, and they can tell their friends. All right. I am going to start 
with, I don't know if this counts as a landmark, but it's definitely a thing on land that people would mark. And they mark it with gum, because it's the gum wall in Seattle. <gasps> We've been there. We have been there. I was wondering, like, the, the gum, is it... Um, artistic expression of something does it have a deeper meaning is it the, the the gum of the people who are holding society together nope the seattle gum wall has been gathering gum since the early 1990s when people waiting for shows at the nearby unexpected productions would stick gum to the wall and coins to the gum to pass the time Fun. humans are so complex so they were bored it's not a political <laughs> stance it's not a whatever it's huh Ah. Although theater workers tried to keep the wall clean when this tradition first started, the number of people who added to it daily overwhelmed the theater's <laughs> cleaning capabilities. Soon, thousands of pe uh, pieces of gum had been stuck to the wall, and cleaning efforts were completely abandoned for over 20 years. Fantastic. So one of the like major um, like Instagram opportunities in Seattle yeah. is entirely based off of, fuck it. I love that. You might imagine the gum wall is just a small strip of wall next to a theater entrance, but the gum is stuck to the walls along an alley for more than 50 feet. Speaking of cleanliness, the Seattle gum wall made the list, unsurprisingly, of the top five germiest tour attractions in 2009, second only to the Blarney Stone, which actually involves putting your lips onto a surface. Oh, I was gonna, I'm glad you said it, because I was like, what the hell is number one if this isn't? <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, I feel like this one, like, it was a shoe in to at least get the podium, yeah. you know? Um, and probably has to be pretty disappointed with a silver, but that's, that's a tough one to beat. Also, yeah. mark down Blarney Stone for the next one. Um, in November of 2015, the Pike Place Market Preservation and Development Authority stripped all of the gum from the wall and steam cleaned the brick underneath to help preserve it. The work took 130 hours and 2,350 uh, pounds, not pieces, pounds of gum were scraped away during the process. However, once again, 130 hours was done... Visitors quickly began adding gum to the wall again. <laughs> if you visit today, you would have no idea that human beings put in 130 hours to scrape away 2,000 pounds of gum. Wow. And that's the story of the Seattle gum wall. Well, I, I want to just say that I think it's really fun because you and I went to yes. the gum wall. Yes, we did. Uh, in November of 2015. Mm-hmm. And we arrived um, the day after the cleaning happened. <laughs> yeah. And at first I was like kind of upset about it. Like I was like, oh man, we, you know, I wanted to see the gum wall. It's been there for like 20 years. And of course we're in Seattle for like two days and we don't get to see it. Yeah. But uh, to your point of how, you know, people began putting gum back on the wall, like we actually got to see the wall, mm -hmm. which in hindsight is now like actually pretty cool that we saw the wall. Right. Because most of the time you just see gum. Only only a select few of us will have gotten to see the actual wall. Exactly. Yeah. It's like when you get uh, a sports rookie card of a player and the player doesn't turn out to be anything, but they get like a horrifying injury and have to retire early. So it's like, ah, it's still a rare card. It's just rare for different reasons than we thought it was. So yes, no, we are um, a couple of the, the rare people on planet Earth who have seen the gum wall sans gum. Yeah, and actually I guess that technically our gum, because we definitely put gum on that wall, yeah. is part of the new original base layer. Yeah, we're some of the longest standing gum on that wall. Oh, that feels so good. Yeah, proud. It's odd. I Can I put that on a resume? 
Probably. I'm gonna. Yeah. I'm DNA g- still in Seattle. I'm gonna. Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, that's the show. Catch episode 26 with Kim and someone else. <laughs> Um, was there anything I feel like, oh, um, you set off the top of your, uh, gum wall, uh, little paragraph there that uh-huh. you didn't think that there was anything, you know, like artsy or specific behind the gum wall. Mm-hmm. And I would beg to differ. Uh, I think that the gum wall is a very site specific piece of public art. That's fair. So. I just thought there was an inspiration behind it instead of just... Sticking your gum to the wall. It is. It's the curiosity of humankind. Oh, okay. Apparently, um, there are like, there are sculpture, like little gum sculptures and stuff kind of (laughs) along as well. I wonder how, uh, I I feel like the process of gum on the wall was delayed in uh, the pandemic. Mm. It's like a place I don't, I don't particularly know if I would want to go in the last 16 months. No, no. You're, that's probably, that's probably a fair assessment. Mm. Also like how... How did they decide who cleaned the gum off the wall? Short straws? Yeah, there isn't a... Obviously, it took them 20 years to do it. There isn't a specific committee designed to (laughs) gum removal. It's probably just like the city of Seattle was like, oh my God, this is not structurally sound. It's too heavy. It's going to rip the floor out of Pike Place. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It is also funny, too, that... Oh, this is so unsanitary. Now let's walk over to the place where they're throwing around dead fish everywhere. Yeah, where they're whipping fish everywhere. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so gonna take a hard left here. Okay. Uh, My first landmark is Tiananmen Square. Oh, okay. (laughs) This is fun, because I feel like last time I went kind of super serious, and... Well, with our Olympic episode, totally. Yes, 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 yes. yes. here's this really important thing, and I was like, hi. Yeah, here's where people sit up to racism. And yours is like, well, here's this thing. Here's this thing. But again, both <laughs> informational. And now we've just reversed it for this one. Here's some shit about Michael Phelps. Because by the way, mine don't get more serious. This is my most, uh, no, this is my most serious one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That one might've been mine. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, let's head to China for Tiananmen Square. So All right. it is uh, 400,000 square meters in area. It is easily the largest urban square in the world. Uh, during the late Qing Dynasty, the Boxer Rebellion caused widespread destruction in Beijing. So this area for Tiananmen Square was cleared out and the square was born, though it did not get to its full size until after the Mao era. Uh, the site has been an important crossroads within the city of Beijing. Uh, it was named for the nearby Tiananmen, or Gate of Heavenly Peace, and marks the entrance of the so-called Forbidden City. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, The location took on added significance as China shifted from an emperor-led political culture to one that was governed by the Communist Party. So the square was in place during that Qing dynasty um, that ruled in China from from 1600 to 1912, but then China fell under Japanese rule. Enter World War II. Uh, after World War II ended, Japan was forced to leave China, and for four years, China entered a period of civil war. At the end of that war, in 1949, the Communist Party gained control of most of mainland China. They established the PPC under the leadership of Chairman Mao Zedong. A celebration to honor the occasion was held in Tiananmen Square in uh, October of 1949, 
more than 1 million Chinese people attended. And wow. this celebration, I know that's a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's 400,000 square meters. So it's it can hold yeah, a lot Yeah, room of for people. a lot of people. Yes. The celebration came to be known as National Day and is still observed annually on that date with huge events, the biggest of which are in the square. Now, the reason you probably know about Tiananmen Square is because the beginnings of civil unrest and protests began with hunger strikes um, as calls for more democratic reform in 1989 and student-led protests and demonstrations called for democracy, free speech, and free press in China in June of 1989 uh, is what set things off and led to the Tiananmen Square massacre. Pro-democracy supporters gathered in the square after the death of Hu Yobang, a former Communist Party leader who had pushed for democratic ideals in communist China. In mourning for him, students gathered in the square, and over the course of hours, many more supporters gathered. The Chinese government sent authorized military to flood into the square, and when protesters fought back, some fled, but some fought back, uh, throwing stones and fighting, the site turned violent and hundreds died. Um... Most of the deaths were of protesters, and reports speculate that the death toll was in the thousands, and numbers higher than 10,000 of people that were arrested. Wow. Um, and here's something that will surprise nobody. I looked up Google reviews for the square, <laughs> and most point out how little, if anything, is mentioned about the 1989 massacre, and it really only focuses on the art of the square, uh, the Forbidden City Gates and it's tied to the Forbidden City, the portrait of Mao, and basically there's no mentions of the massacre. So do with that info what you will. Yeah, that's um, certainly a very Chinese way of going about that, with a Chinese government way, I should say, yeah. of going about that. Of eh, Nothing to see here, nothing happened here. Nope, there is not one uh, very famous image from this spot. Nope, nope, nope. Uh-huh, nothing like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I... Uh, I didn't really know a lot about Tiananmen Square, and honestly, no. I didn't even know a lot about the massacre before. No, because all, all I know is that guy stood in front of that tank. Yeah, the tank man. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's... Oh, that's, I, had no, I wouldn't have guessed it was that big. I know, it's huge. Yeah, that's crazy. Absolutely huge. And then, yeah, the picture of... Because uh, there's the giant portrait of Mao, um, and even that's massive. Like, you see it in photos, and you're like, oh, it can't be that big. Like, it's probably the same size as the Mona Lisa. Nope. Nope. No, absolutely massive. <laughs> they have a lot of space and they have uh, put a lot of it into Tiananmen Square, I suppose. Yeah. So, yeah, that that's what I learned about that one. All right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm happy you did that one because that is certainly one that I was thinking we should do something on. So I'm happy that that came up here. Mm -hmm. And obviously I have very much shortened the story. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. There was like some civil unrest uh, for like the year before who Yabang died uh and you know it wasn't just like people started gathering and then military was sent in it is much more complex than that mm -hmm. uh, but for the sake of us talking about a landmark yes I've in terms of Tiananmen Square itself exactly yeah yep. okay that is very interesting mm -hmm. all right my next one is out in Brazil mm. it is the Christ the Redeemer statue Cristo in Portuguese, it is Cristo Redentor. Oh, sorry, um, I didn't even read that. Yeah, no, it's fine. Um, one of the uh, MMA podcasts that I listened to back in the day, the, the there's the Gracie family who all of their names start with R, 
but like it's instead of Renzo Gracie, it's Henzo Gracie. And so one of their jokes was like any every name had that started with an R had like the huh sound. So it was like Howdy Honda Housey uh, instead of Rally <laughs> And so at first I was like, is this Cristo Yadentor? I was like, wait, no, that was a stupid MMA bit. Never mind. Yadentor? Yeah. <laughs> um anyway, the it is the colossal statue of Jesus Christ at the summit of Mount Corcovado in Rio de Janeiro in the southeast of Brazil. The statue of Christ the Redeemer was completed in 1931. Oh. Uh, yeah, right? It stands 98 feet tall with horizontally outstretched arms spanning 92 feet. The statue was made of reinforced concrete clad in a mosaic of thousands of triangular soapstone tiles. It sits on a square stone pedestal base about 26 feet high, which itself is situated on a deck atop of the mountain's summit. The statue is the largest Art Deco style sculpture in the world. Wow. And sorry, yep. I just want to say quickly, so 1931, mm -hmm. did you think that was early or late? Uh, I thought that was late. Oh, I thought it was... Oh, no, I thought it was late, too. Okay. Yeah. When you said 1931, I was like, not like 1600? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, it just seems like one of those things that would just always be there. Yeah. So, how it came to be was actually a bit of a longer process, but not super compared to some of the other ones we've talked about. Uh, in the 1850s, made-up time frame, the Venetian <laughs> priest Pedro Maria boss suggested placing a Christian monument on Mount Corcovado to honor Isabel, princess regent of Brazil and daughter of Emperor Pedro II, although the project was never approved. Mm. In 1921, the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Rio de Janeiro proposed that a statue of Christ be built on the 2,310-foot summit, which, because it's fucking huge, would make it visible from anywhere in Rio. Citizens petitioned President at the time uh, to allow the construction <laughs> of the statue on Mount His Corcovado. Name is listed. His name is listed. That's the joke here. Yeah. Do you want to give that one a go? Uh, President Epi Epitacio Pessoa. Yeah. So that guy was like, dope. So permission was granted. <laughs> Do it. And now, here's the part that I appreciate greatly. Okay. The foundation stone of the base was ceremonially laid on April 4th, 1922 to commemorate oh. the centennial on that day of Brazil's independence from Portugal, although the monument's final design had not been chosen yet. So to recap from our last episode, <laughs> when the Statue of Liberty was fine, except for the base, <laughs> these guys didn't even know what version of Christ was redeemering. And they were still, yeah, no, we got the base ready to go. We are all about that base. Oh my god! Take note, New York. Nine years before the statue was completed, they had yeah, the base ready to go. Yeah, they had the base go. ready to go. Like, we don't know what we're building on this thing, even if we just have a stupid base at the top of this hill for the rest of everyone's <laughs> lives. That's fine. Wow. I appreciate it. Suck it, Statue of Liberty. Yeah. <laughs> that same year, 
A competition was held to find a designer, and the Brazilian engineer Hitor de Silva Costa was chosen on the basis of his sketches of a figure of Christ holding a cross in his right hand and the world in his left. In collaboration with Brazilian artist Carlos Oswald, Silva Costa later amended the plan. Oswald has been credited with the idea for the figure's standing pose with arms spread wide. The French sculptor, Paul Landowski, who collaborated with Silva Costa on the final design, has been credited as the primary designer of the figure's head and hands. Funds were raised privately, principally by the church under Silva uh, Costa's supervision. Construction began in 1926 and continued for five years. During that time, because I wondered this too, uh, materials and workers were transported to the summit mm. via a railway. They didn't just have to haul up concrete up 2,000 feet of a mountain. I thought they did. I thought they did for sure. When you said that it was 2,310 feet in the air, I was like, ugh. That sounds like a big-ass hike to me. Yeah. Huh. So, there you go. That is the story of Christ the Redeemer, which is, like, regardless of religious beliefs, I feel is one of the more, like, um, I don't know how to put this. Like, the, the pictures of it are iconic. Like, just from a photography standpoint, it's this giant statue of someone with his arms spread wide over a very picturesque, city of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Like, it's it's one of the more iconic, I think, mm-hmm. images of all time. Well, I mean, just the the size of it and, like, the gravitas of it is, mm-hmm. is something just to behold. You're right. Like, whether you're religious or not, it's... I mean, this is going to sound redundant. A mo- it's monumental. Yeah. No, it's, it's massive. And yeah. one of the things I was thinking, like, again, I'm not an engineer, but it feels like that first design where he's holding the globe in his one hand, mm-hmm. if they have the art outstretched hands and there's just a big globe on the one hand, I feel like structurally that seems like a problem. Right. Maybe it was more structural integrity. Yeah. Why they went with just outstretched hands, not holding anything. Yeah. So this was one that I definitely thought, because like the, the Statue of Liberty, oh, well, we should do this. Well, we should do this. What if we did this? Or like the um, the, the Washington Monument mm-hmm. where they had a bunch of different ideals, ideas and now it's just like a stick in the ground. Mm-hmm. I was wondering like, what was some of the things here? And it was like, hey, we could do one of the Daughter of the Emperor and everyone just kind of ghosted that person for 30 years until they said, okay, but what about this? <laughs> and that's basically it. So that is the, the story of the wonderful efficiency of the foundation of Brazil. Okay. Uh, so let's go across the ocean again. Okay. To the Trevi Fountain. Okay. Uh, the Trevi Fountain uh, is built on top of an already existing ancient water source, uh, which was built during the ancient Roman times in, ready for this made up year? Okay. 19 BCE. Hmm. 1919. 19. <sighs> imagine, imagine turning 18 and 19. <laughs> <laughs> the structure was set in a central location marked at the joint of three main roads. Uh, which is where the Trevi Fountain gets its name, Trevia, Three Ways, since the fountain is at the meeting of three streets. Oh, interesting. Yeah, kind of fun. Uh, It dates back to 1762, where after many years of hard work uh, at the hands of Nicola Salvi, it was finalized by, ready for this Italian name? Go for it. Giuseppe Panini. Oh, that sounds entirely made up. (laughs) That sounds like... Yeah, I read that and I was like, this is a credible website, right? Yeah, that sounds (laughs) like what, like a sketch comedy would name in Italian, but like not a good one. Like Mad TV instead of 
um, Saturday Night Live. Like, that's what they would come up with for an Italian name. Totally. Giuseppe Panini. Yeah. Also, sorry for the drive-by shot Mad TV, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, as the city was built uh, around the fountain, it remained until 1629 when Pope Urban VIII yep. decided the ancient fountain did not hold enough grandeur and ordered a remodel to commence. He commissioned the famous Gian Lorenzo Bernini to design the fountain, who created right, <laughs> who created many sketches of his ideas before the project was put on hold due to Pope Urban VIII's passing. It wasn't until 100 years later, in uh, 1762, well, before then, because they obviously had to make some decisions, Yeah. but it wasn't until 100 years later that the project started up again with Nicholas Salvi assigned to design the fountain. I'm sorry. I'm really disappointed that it's not the other way around. Hmm. I wanted Bernini to come after Panini in the time because then you could say, well, they had a Panini and then they had to cook it a little longer and then it was Bernini. <laughs> wow, I'm going to move right along. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, so the Trevi Fountain took over 30 years to complete. Salvi used Bernini's original sketches. I guess I should say Salvi and Panini used Bernini's original sketches to create. Salvi and Bernini's. <laughs> Um, so the artistry of the statue and its many facets of the fountain or make it so remarkable, remarkable. It's also massive. Hmm. It's 49 meters wide. Oh, wow. So it's like 150 feet long. The fountain and its sculptures are made of pure white travertine stone. The same material that's used in the Colosseum. Mm. Which is kind of fun. It does certainly have that look to it, hey? Totally. Yeah. Um, so it hasn't really had that much restoration done to it. Uh, okay. Since its creation in 1762. That's cool. Uh, except for an intensive project that was funded by Fendi Luxury Fashion House. Right? Okay. <laughs> and cost $2.2 million. Whoa. Uh, so that was done, I think, uh, in 2016, 2017. Um, but yeah, there was like a huge restoration done on it but basically nothing else has happened to it hmm. uh the fountain and its sculptures oh sorry the fountain's theme is taming of the waters which each sculpture within the fountain symbolizes important aspects to the city the central structure is the god oceanus who can be seen standing on a chariot and he's guided by seahorses uh beside him are other important statues that represent uh, certain things like abundance and health within the city. Um, so probably no matter what you know about the Trevi Fountain, you know that people throw coins into it. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a proper way to throw your coin in. Uh, you're supposed to like put your, you back right up to the statue and you put your heels like a, the statue, sorry, the fountain. You put your heels right to the, the edge of it. You hold it in your right hand and toss it over your left shoulder. Kay. So the coin has to cross over your heart. Oh. Right. Uh, so if you throw a coin in and you do it that way, then uh, you're destined to come back to Rome. If you throw two coins in that way, uh, you might live in Rome. And if you do three coins that way, you will fall in love in Rome. Aw. Aw, so nice. Cute. Yeah. Um, so I asked myself the question, why did Fendi have to pay for the restoration on... The Trevi Fountain, when people are literally encouraged to throw multiple coins into it. <laughs> um, so about 
$1.7 million, American, of course, mm-hmm. is collected every year from the Trevi Fountain. Okay. And it's given to a Catholic charity that helps the poor and homeless in Rome. Oh, that's nice. That is kind of nice. Yeah. Uh, Rome's mayor and her team are looking toward keeping the money so that it could be used to improve the city's infrastructure, but a lot of people are like, no, just keep giving it to charity. Yeah. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah, it is really nice. And I wanted to say, I went to Google Reviews. Excellent. It has a 4.7 out of 5. Okay. Out of 279... or. Yeah, 279,428 reviews. And we're going to read them all right now. You name me something that has that high of a rating after that many reviews. Ooh, yeah, that's fair. And all of the bad reviews on it are about the tourists. It's like, oh, there's too many people. (laughs) It was too many people. It was too packed. We were sardines, blah, blah, blah. There's literally no bad review about the fountain itself. And my favorite review comes from Sarah Murphy... I lived out my Lizzie McGuire dream. <laughs> <laughs> and then she goes on to say that the fountain is truly magnificent, which of course it is. It's massive and beautiful. Um, not to like steal thunder or anything. I feel like I'm just adding on here. Sure, please. Um, I just Googled it. Trevi Fountain is the second most reviewed place on Google Maps. <gasps> What's the first? Masjid Al-Haram. It's a mosque in Saudi Arabia. Okay. Oh, Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Known as the Great Mosque of Mecca. Oh, wow. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. Huh. Well, you had the uh, the second germiest place, <laughs> and I had the second most reviewed place. Yes, yeah. That's nice. <laughs> uh, and now, a fountain of a different kind. Okay. Yours of great tradition. Yes. And architecture. Mine is called Mannequin Piss in Brussels. Now... I know some people have said that maybe we swear a bit too much on these shows. I'm just calling it what it's called, man. It's called Mannequin Piss. The statue's name quite literally means peeing little man. Do you think it's pronounced Mannequin Piss? Um, as if I didn't Google this to make sure I was pronouncing it right. Okay. Oh, sorry. This is according to Wikipedia. Okay. Okay. Sorry. The name Mannequin Piss was <laughs> first mentioned in archives dating back to 1452. Before that, he was named Petit Julien and was part of a public fountain on the same street corner. The stone statue was replaced by a bronze sculpture in 1619. It is unknown whether the replica resembles the first one, as the original was not preserved. Hmm. Mannequin piss was stolen and retrieved several times throughout history. (laughs) In 1745, which means the people of Brussels have pissed it away several times. Uh, In 1745, it was stolen by English soldiers and later found in the city of damn Gerard I have this right there you go um to thank the helpful people of Gerardsbergen a replica was gifted to the city (laughs) it was stolen again in 1747 two years later (laughs) by (laughs) French grenadiers who were in Brussels as part of Louis XV's 
uh, Army of France, the population of Brussels revolted, almost causing a riot to make up for the behavior of the soldiers. Louis XV gave mannequin piss beautiful clothes embroidered <laughs> in gold. Thank goodness. One of the more recent times it was stolen, we have a gap here between 1747 and 1963 mm. as a prank by the Antwerp Students' Union de Vikings. The last time it was stolen was just two years later in 1965. The perpetrator broke off the statue's ankles. Ah. As for the reason for the statue, there's no clear explanation oh as to why the statue stands there. The most probable explanation has to do with the fact that there were many tanners on what is probably not pronounced this way, but I'm going to say the Rue de la Touve um, <laughs> during the Middle Ages. It was not uncommon to let children pee on leather since ammonia in urine helps to make the leather more supple. Of course, there's no way of knowing whether mannequin piss was truly a tribute to the Tanners. Another popular story is how the boys saved the city of Brussels. The legend goes that Brussels was surrounded by enemies who pretended to retreat, but were actually hiding gunpowder underneath. A little boy named Julian saw the burning fuse and quickly peed on it. Wow. Out of gratitude, the city made a statue in his likeness. One of the more whimsical versions of how the story came to be involves a witch catching a boy peeing on her front door. Furious, she cursed him so he would pee for eternity. Luckily, a man who had seen everything quickly replaced the boy with a statue. In another version, the witch succeeded, not only cursing the lad with forever a full bladder, but also turning him into stone. Which, again, if you believe in such things, mm -hmm. kind of sounds like my idea of hell. Burn the witches! You just always have to pee. Yeah. You're just perpetually, for the rest of your life, stuck in a feeling of having to take a piss. It's like one of those um, where it's like, oh, you know what? Like, I don't wish you, like, ill will. I just wish you a ton of minor inconveniences. Yeah, like, I hope you step on Lego. Yeah, I hope that, like, people cross the road in front of your car, but, like, in a way that you can't, like, get in between them. Like, there's always weird pacings of people and you're yeah. stuck at a green light or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's That's like that. that. Yes. Uh, there are two stories in which Mannequin Piss is actually the young Duke Godfrey III of Leuven. Uh, in the first one, he ran from his father's castle so he could play with other children in Brussels and was finally found on the famous street corner. The more creative of the two legends, however, the young Duke was tied to an oak tree during battle. When Godfrey was two years old, his father died, and two noblemen from the house of Berthut declared war. Godfrey's guardians asked the Count of Flanders for help. The Count agreed, but his troops were unsure, demanding to see who exactly they were fighting for. To satisfy his army, the infant was shown and taken to battle. <laughs> there, Godfrey was placed in a basket that hung from an oak tree as a symbol of encouragement for the troops, and encouraged them he did. Every now and then, little Godfrey stood up and peed on the heads of the enemies. Wow. Godfrey's allies won the battle and celebrated in, uh, in Brussels where they planted the oak tree. Legend states that is why the street next to Mannequin Piss is named Rue de Chêne, meaning oak tree. And of course, next to the oak, they erected a statue of the young kid peeing. So, a number of different ways, but none of them... Um, actually confirmable in right. any way. It's a tradition in Brussels to dress the little bronze statue at special occasions. His wardrobe, which contains more than 800 costumes, including the expensive outfits gifted by King Louis XV of France, are kept at the Maison de Roy? Roy? Just Roy. 
Roy? Okay. Uh, the first clothes Mannequin Piss ever received were gifted by Maximilian II, Emmanuel, Elector of Bavaria, who was the governor of the Austrian Netherlands. Huh. Peeing Boy's wardrobe ranges <laughs> from Santa's suits to national costumes from countries around the world. One of the recent additions is a red leather Chinese costume presented by the city of Haining, China. On special occasions, brass bands would play here and mannequin piss would be hooked up to different flavors no. of Belgium beer, which poured from his fountain tip and given out to the public. No, why? Oh, boy. Now... If you're wondering, wow, this is a good idea. They should have more of those. Oh, they thought of that. <laughs> Mannequin Piss is not the only peeing statue in Brussels. In 1987, he was joined by a peeing girl named Gianki Piss. Gianki? Gianki Piss. Her statue can be found on a dead-end street near Rue de Boucher. And the family expanded in 1998 with Zeniki Piss, a peeing dog. Oh, my God. Now, there is a bit of an issue with our statue. In 2019, city officials say they had no idea that Mannequin Piss or Peeing Boy had been spilling 1,000 to 2,500 liters of clean tap water per day, <gasps> per day into the city's sewage system, enough for 10 households. An engineer technician discovered the water issue after installing a tracking meter in the 61 centimeter fountain statue in 2018 as part of a citywide project to keep better track of water usage on municipal properties. Wow. The city thought that the famed tourist attraction was running on a closed circuit, recycling its water from a tank, but it appears that at some point it developed a leak and started taking water directly from the city's taps. That leak has now been secured. Wow. So for a little bit, that statue was literally pissing away this town's water. Wow. I've never heard of that. The statue or the... statue? The... Yeah. Never heard of it. I, I've seen like, because obviously it, it is now sold as you can have it in any fountain ever. Mm. Um, so I've seen I've seen it before, but I don't. I, I mean, I've never been to Brussels, but I, I didn't know exactly where it came from. So I was pretty happy to to find that one. Hmm. That's really interesting, and also really fucking weird. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. <laughs> Like hooking I, up beer to it, I'm not. I'm not here for that. I also love that everyone's just like, "Hey, why is there a pissing boy on the street?" I don't know. Let's all make up a story individually and yeah, tell it, it like it's the truth. It might be a tribute to people who helped with leather. It might be a witch. It might be an army thing. Like we don't know. It's probably a witch. Yeah, probably a witch. <laughs> okay, well, uh, for the final landmark of this episode, um, I'm gonna take another hard left okay. from what you've done. And we're going to go to Afghanistan and talk about the minaret and archaeological remains of Jam. Okay. Right? Uh, so the minaret of Jam is 65 meters tall, very tall. It's massive and beautiful. It was built in another made-up year, 1193 BCE. God, that sounds even more made up than normal. Than 19 BCE? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, so I didn't know what a minaret was. It's a large spike-looking tower. It usually okay. has a balcony. And it was used to call people for prayer. So it's oh. like kind of seen from all over the place. Um, and instead of like a bell tower or something, it was like a person would sound on the balcony and just be like, hey, it's time. <laughs> but hey. not, not in hey English, you. generally. <laughs> hey. 
I know you haven't been here in a couple weeks. Come yeah. on. It's just me. Hey. Uh, hello. I know you can see me. I'm on a giant thing. <laughs> yeah. Do you need me to jump up and down? Um, so this minaret is covered in elaborate brickwork. And if you Google a photo of it, and I suggest you do, uh, it is stunning. Yeah, it's incredible. It is so beautiful. Um, it is, so it's detailed in brickwork and then there's blue tile detail, like at the top and kind of in the middle. Uh, it represents the culmination of an architectural and artistic tradition in this region. Uh, its impact is heightened by the dramatic setting. So it's in a deep river valley that's surrounded by mountains and it's in the heart of the Gir province in Afghanistan. Since the building of the minaret, Around 800 years ago, again, 1193, super made up year, no reconstruction or extensive restoration work has ever taken place. Wow. Yeah. The archaeological vestiges were surveyed and recorded in 1957 when the remains were first discovered by archaeologists. Subsequent surveys and studies have led only to simple precautionary, like, stabilization measures to the base, um, filling in some, like, there was a lot of looting and robbery that went on. Um, so a lot of the archaeological digs, and there, I guess there haven't been a lot of archaeological digs, I should say that, um, are basically just, like, trying to fill in the robber holes oh, okay. around this. Huh. Um, there has been some surveys done, but... Yeah, mostly looting. Uh, in the surveys, they found that there was Arabic and Hebrew inscriptions found uh, on stones near the minaret, um, which lead researchers to believe that Muslim and Jewish people lived here in peace at some point. Most archaeological digs have been canceled before they even began because of political climates in Afghanistan. I, I feel like because of the political climate in Afghanistan... Uh -huh. That having something that's lasted that long is kind of even more impressive. You want to hear something even more fucking impressive to go along with your point? Yes, I do. Genghis Khan. Okay. Who destroyed every everything in his path. Yeah. Uh, was there. Whoa. It was an area that he and his um, army went into. Some scholars hypothesize that the Minaret of Jam was spared mainly because of its purpose and value as a watchtower to Genghis Khan. Interesting. Yeah. So whatever the reason for them saving it, it is clear that the uh, residents that used to live there were killed or forced to abandon their city. Uh, what still is unknown is whether the exile occurred gradually or if it was like a sudden, peri a sudden period of catastrophe. So hmm. if it was Genghis Khan coming in or if it was... Um, you know, like flooding or earthquakes. Like there's a lot of natural mm. yeah. things that happen in this area. And so the fact that it's still standing is like a wonder. So for hundreds of years, Jam remained hidden because again, it's like in this mountainous area. Mm -hmm. It was rediscovered by members of the Afghan Boundary Commission in 1886. Um, but like I just said, nature uh, was kind of a dick in preserving this site so it's near the Harry Rood Fault, which makes it prone to earthquakes. It's also nearby rivers that flood the valley. So according to historians, the area was inundated by flash floods that covered all of the abandoned houses of the people that used to live around this minaret. Okay. Geological evidence uncovered by archaeologists also suggests that this was the case, though there is some uncertainty about the number of times that the ancient city was flooded. Hmm. How wild is that? That is crazy. Yeah. I had no idea about this. Uh, yeah, me neither. 
I had to Google what a minaret was. I did not know. No. Um, but yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And oh, it's stunning. It's stunning. And of, you know, uh, a, like, like I just said, like the political climate in Afghanistan um, makes it hard to survey. And it is on the UNESCO World Heritage Sites um, danger list mm. as somewhere that like desperately needs work. Um, but we can't get into it. Yeah. So. Uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Super crazy. Uh, so actually, I think in, um, I had a story here that in 2016, uh, there was some of that stabilization work was done to it. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So uh, fairly recently, yeah. there was some work done to it, like the very minimal work. Um, nothing has ever been done to like the outside of it though. So just stabilization of the base. Hmm. Um, and the everything that's left on the outside is from 1193. That's crazy. That's crazy. Because yeah, like when we were doing the, the stuff in like Japan and seeing all the castles and everything, mm-hmm. it's like, this is what it looked like back when it was built. But because we've been bombed a couple of times, mm-hmm. um, this all looks a little bit different and it's like that's it's still really really cool and it doesn't necessarily take away from it but still to know that this is like basically the original thing Mm -hmm. with just some stabilization yeah is actually kind of crazy to wrap your head around oh totally 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 and it's not small either this no it's giant yeah yeah just wild right yeah very cool very beautiful uh and very like rich in culture and history and it's just uh, it's pretty sad that, you know, you can't, you can't go see it. There's not like a lot really known about it. There hasn't been too much archeology span done of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. But crazy, right? Super crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Good one to end on today. Hey, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> we, you know, maybe we should have ended on mannequin piss, but. No, here no, we no, are no that's fine. No, this was a good one to end on. And again, one that uh, fits the show because I had no idea. Mm-hmm. But that was my that was my tie-in is that Genghis Khan was there. Yeah. And again, like to, to survive the current political climate there and also the guy who was known for wrecking shit yeah. to not wreck that particular thing. And you can see like, yeah, it probably served as a pretty good watchtower for them. Yeah. Yeah. So no, that's, that's really interesting. And yeah, a, a nice tie-in to, to close things out. So thank you for listening. Uh, we appreciate you coming back week after week. We love doing these, and uh, I learned about I learned about six landmarks in this episode because I didn't really know anything about any of these. Yeah, I'm pretty well the same way. I knew about the gum wall, but only oh, that yeah, it existed. Sorry, I guess, yeah. But um, the only I only now know that I know about the gum wall because I now know that there was nothing really to know about the gum wall. Mm. So you're welcome for you that. You knew everything there was to know. Right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Uh, That will not be the case next week as we talk about Northern Ireland. Um, This is one that, again, I'm going to have to do a lot of research on because I I don't know. I don't know anything, really, uh, about Northern Ireland. But I do know that when someone on the greatest day of her life comes up to you and sternly tells you that you need to do Northern Ireland... (laughs) You do Northern Ireland. And that was the case at my sister's wedding. So um, from request of the the recent bride, we are doing Northern Ireland next week. Yes. Uh, So thank you for that suggestion, Rachel. Uh, Mm -hmm. Really appreciate it. Suggestion's a nice way of putting that, yeah. Suggestion, uh, forceful (laughs) coercion. Right. 
uh, stern talking to you. She did she grab your ear? Uh, no, no, not quite. Just short no. of it. Yeah, yeah. You better do this. Yeah. <laughs> How dare you say you're running out of topics? <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for downloading and listening. We can't wait to uh, talk to you next week. If you want to send us an email, you can. We had no idea podcast at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on Instagram at we had no idea podcast. Cool. You want you don't have anything to say? Do I have something to say? I don't know. I don't think I do. Okay, well, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.